Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that the following program contains the names and voices of those who have passed. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. I'll talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. I hope that, you know, that we all heal and heal together as people, as a nation, and uh, come to a better understanding of one another. Uh, and it takes us getting off our backsides and meeting people and talking to them. And there's some angry people out there, black, white and brindle, but we've got to yeah, look past that and uh, get closer to the ones that want to, to come together, the want to heal past wounds and forge ahead and write a new story for this country. And we can all be authors of that new story. Celebrating the life of Uncle Archie Roach. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. A new government and Australia seems well on the way to a referendum to enshrine a First Nations voice to Parliament into the Constitution. Joining me to discuss this and the other big issues that have got First Nations people talking are ABC journalist Nakari Thorpe and Professor of Indigenous Policy and Acting Director of Jambana Research at UTS, Lyndon Coombs. Nakari, what was the significance of the speech given by Anthony Albanese announcing his commitment to a referendum question? Yeah, look, I think it was pretty significant. You know, from even before Gama, Anthony Albanese's first words as Prime Minister was committing to the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full. You know, it was clear from the beginning this would be a priority for his government. And that was reiterated in the first sitting week of the new parliament and again at the Gama Festival where he revealed the wording of a question to be put to the Australian people at a referendum and he said he wants it to be a very simple, a very clear yes or no question plus a three-sentence change to the Constitution. So I think this is a very big step forward in this campaign, which, as we know, was originally proposed in Uluru in 2017, but of course these calls for change have been made for decades. I think... um, It's important to note that this is not a final form of words, but something Mr Albanese says will help shape and direct the conversation. Um, But there have been criticisms and concerns that there isn't enough information or detail about the voice and how it would work. You know, there have been people saying that is crucial into getting a successful vote at a referendum. If we look back in history, of course, referendums aren't very successful in Australia We've had about 44 of them, only eight of those has passed. So I think, yeah, this is a very positive step forward for the advocates for the Voice uh, campaign, but I think we also have to acknowledge that there are a variety of views about the Voice within the Indigenous community, also within the Parliament from Indigenous leaders. So there are a variety of views about the Voice, but a positive step forward. Lyndon, what was your response to the announcement? Yeah, um, it was really a new Prime Minister recommitting, as Nakari said, to what he had said on election night, which, um, you know, proves that he's fair dinkum about it, that there is a genuine commitment and they're going to push through with it. There are a range of views, again, as Nakari pointed out, within the Indigenous community and clearly outside of the Indigenous community and the, the sort of dot points have been rammed home, one of which being there's not enough detail. And really, that's subjective. Um, When you look back at at the enormous amounts of research and reports around things like a voice and constitutional change, when there is more detail, the same people say that it's too complex. Um, You can sort of see uh, the arguments coming and, of course, no campaigns are easier um, to run. And so uh, I think that that's what supporters of The Voice need to be prepared for, is that uh, the detractors will pick a thread, pick a number of threads and keep pulling until they think they can weaken it enough. Do you think Australia's ready? 
I do. I, I have a different feel about this. I, I've changed my view personally around this. Um, I was quite cynical at the start. I thought perhaps the the limited time frame, I think it's a fairly quick time frame for, for constitutional change and a referendum. But in a way, I think that works. I think the longer the issue is around, the more likely it is to be pulled apart. And so, yeah, I am a bit more hopeful than perhaps what I was a year ago. But Carrie, what do you think of the proposed time frame? Yeah, look, I think it, it does seem fast, but like Lyndon has said, the longer something like this lingers, um, it is harder to get people over the line. I do think there is, it seems to be a general consensus that there is support for this. There have been a number of different polls that have been done quite strongly uh, supporting a voice, but whether the Labor government can, can get enough support in time, then, you know, they're talking about next year, is going to be one of the biggest challenges for him. And obviously it's a priority. So they're going to put, you know, the work in to make it happen. Nakari mentioned that there is not one view within the First Nations community about the referendum or even about the Uluru Statement. Uh, from your perspective, how effective do you think Linda Burney will be as Minister for Indigenous Australians in terms of bringing people together? I think very. I've worked for Linda uh, many years ago and she is a mighty advocate and I've seen her use her intellect uh, to get people over the line. Um, and one of her early statements as Minister was that she was quite... Um, hopeful and ambitious that she would be able to engage Peter Dutton. Um, but then I remembered what a, what a force of nature uh, she is. And I think it's, you know, she's one of the great strengths um, for a yes case. And, you know, we'll, we'll get to see uh, what she's made of, I think, over the next couple of years when she's out there articulating the case, which she's great at, and advocating for, for a yes vote. Um, Anthony Albanese, of course, is enjoying a record positive popularity rating in these early days of his new government. Nakari, how would you rate Albanese's first few months? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. I think obviously Labor's made some big moves in certain areas, not so much in others. If we remember those first few weeks of the election campaign, things weren't going so great for Anthony Albanese. He made a few errors, a few slip-ups. Um, but since he has become Prime Minister, I think he's done relatively okay. I think, you know, with a new government comes a renewed push for change. We've seen an explosion of activity, but how long this lasts, I guess, remains to be seen. He's already made, you know, a number of overseas trips in those first few weeks in the top job. He went to Ukraine in that. Um, so they're also making steps to stabilising a relationship with China. Um, we've seen them reset the country's policy on climate change. And we saw last week that climate change bill get the support of the Greens. And of course, you know, his support for an Indigenous voice to Parliament has been front and centre. So it's clear there are some big moves being made in these first few weeks and months as Prime Minister. But he's also got a lot more independence in the Parliament now. So I think Labor's going to have to be as collaborative as ever uh, in trying to pass legislation. But we've already seen, you know, aged care reforms, domestic violence leave. We've seen the Tamil family return to their home in Villa Wheela. Um, but, of course, with that comes criticism. And I guess most recently of Anthony Albanese is taking a holiday, which I believe he's on now, just three months into the job. And I think we all remember how uh, that looked for Scott Morrison, but I think it's a very different circumstance this time around. But look, I think right now many Australians are, are doing it tough. We have, you know, the cost of living is going up with petrol and food prices. We're still in a COVID pandemic. So I think this is front of mind for many people and as well as the many global challenges that we have. So I think you know, people will be looking to the government for certainty, for that support, and what the government does now remains to be seen. Lyndon, what are your observations about his government in its first couple of months? Yeah, again, I've been surprised. It's been a, a very sort of active and decisive government on, on many levels. Albanese was overseas very quickly. Those were things that I think most Australians understood and accepted uh, that he would need to do. 
I think in the in the campaign, um, Albanese wanted to present um, the ALP as a team. I think he feels he's got strong uh, people uh, within his cabinet. And, you know, uh, I think in a very short period of time, Penny Wong was off to the Pacific where relationships had broken down, where China has a rising influence. And it just seemed that this was unlike other ALP governments that I think have been a bit wishy-washy in pursuing some of those types of issues. So Indigenous issues, you know, moving very quickly around the cashless uh, debit card you know, obviously still very much in a honeymoon period, um, but, you know, things will will get interesting very soon. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt and my guests are Nakari Thorpe and Lyndon Coombs. The National Centre for Indigenous Excellence, or the NCIE in Redfern, has been credited with giving the community a home for important youth-based and health-focused programs. But this week, it looked like it was about to close. Nakari, you covered this story. What happened? Well, look, this is an ever-changing situation. Uh, What we understand now is that the two organisations, the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation, who were the old owners and the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, who are the new owners, have now agreed to keep the National Centre of Indigenous Excellence facilities open until a more permanent solution is found. So the corporation has said that they'll run the operations during this time. So what happened is that they had divested the site to the Land Council in June, uh, but they couldn't come to an agreement about its financial future. The Land Council said it it had been running at a loss for a number of years of about $2 million a year, and it wasn't something that they had capacity or the resources to operate. They were always taking over the site as a landlord, and it was their understanding that the ILSC, the corporation, had always intended on entering into some type of arrangement for the centre that was outside of the scope of their negotiations. Um, But that changed up until late April when negotiations broke down and they couldn't find any common ground on the way forward. That resulted in the ILSC deciding to shut the centre down. Now, this all unfolded last Monday when staff at the NCIE were told by the ILSC that the centre would be shutting down and they would be losing their jobs the following week. And they were offered severance payments. They were asked to sign non-disclosure agreements. I don't believe any of the staff did this. Um, They were left, as you can imagine, heartbroken and shocked by this announcement. But the community really quickly rallied together to protest this sudden closure, and they've been doing that every day since. Right now, they're staging a sit-in at the centre They're waiting for both of these organisations to talk to them face-to-face about its future. And while both, I guess, organisations have come to this agreement for the time being, the community says they've been completely left out of it and disregarded in the whole conversation. And they've actually put together their own recommendations to government, and namely they're calling for people to keep their jobs, confirm that the site won't be sold, its doors are kept open, and income that's made from the site goes towards funding its programs and services. And as we know, this is a really critical service. It provides a number of different programs and services for the local community, particularly for young Indigenous people. So it's vital. Um, and it, I guess the outcome now that it, the doors will stay open for the time being just goes to show how much the com- it means to the community. Yes, they've been a powerhouse in relation to this. It shows how much they care about this institution. Lyndon, from your perspective, you're connected with this community from where you live and work. What has been your observation about the role that the NCIE has played in transforming Redfern? I I actually applied to be the inaugural CEO of the NCIE because I had sort of watched it being physically developed and when... um, when they went out to recruit, I could see the potential of a centre of excellence and to raise that bar that Indigenous people aren't just going to get um, something off the shelf. They're not going to get something just to get by. They're going to get excellence. They're going to get excellence in terms of the facilities, excellence in terms of the programs, and that resonated with the community. 
um, that sort of organic ownership that we're now seeing coming from the community is really hard to get. <laughs> you can drop a, a great facility into um, any number of communities and they won't get that buy-in, you know, and it's something you can't buy. It needs to be something that's really worked out its relationships. It's work and that has worked. And when I heard about this, to take that off a community, um, that, an institute um, that is so beloved, just uh, broke my heart. I couldn't couldn't fathom that it wouldn't be around. You know, I think if they did sort of take it away for a month, you'd see the hole left. You know, I understand that the organisations um, are looking at the bottom line, but that is saving all of us money. I, I'm sure that the the local area commander wouldn't be happy um, if that institute was uh, closed down. It provides a, a, a space for, for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal kids, um, a place, safe place to go, a, a great place to go, and we just can't lose it. Well, we can keep an eye on Nakari's excellent reporting as things develop there. On a very sad note, though, of course, Australia lost our great songman, Uncle Archie Roach. His life inspired us, his music uplifted us, and his passing leaves us very bereft. Lyndon, what were your thoughts? Oh, yeah, heartbroken. Um, I think everyone felt like they had a connection to, to Archie, and um, when he passed, I, on social media, all of my Aboriginal friends and family, almost all of them had a photo with Archie, and that sort of hit home that he was connected, that we claimed him um, as part of our communities, that when he sung, he told a story, a story that we had all experienced, a story that we were unfortunately familiar with. And he told that with such you know, grace and dignity. Um, and I think we all felt um, a connection to him about that. And it said a lot to him with all those photos. You know, he took time for community and giving back as well. Just heartbreaking, but what a life. It's true. We all felt some connection with him. Nakari, what were your reflections? Oh, look, when I heard this news, I actually broke down in tears because, you know, it's incredibly sad, not only for our community, the, the, the country, and I thought of his family straight away. I think he was such a, a beautiful song man, a beautiful soul who really conveyed those tough messages so eloquently. And, you know, the way he conveyed the message of the Stolen Generations is proof of that. He really validated their feelings for the people that were taken and he made the rest of Australia really listen. Um, and he meant so much to my family in Victoria. I know so many of us feel connected to him, but he actually came from the same country as my grandmother's, Gunditjmara country. And that's where he was stolen from. And he also has that strong connection to the suburb of Fitzroy in Melbourne, which was a big focus of some of his early music. And that was a place where mob gathered in Melbourne. It was a social and political hub for Aboriginal Melbourne. And much of my family were there at the same time as Uncle Archie was. And so we all have these beautiful, fond memories of him throughout the years. And we'll all hold those dear to our hearts now. And I actually had the privilege of interviewing Uncle Archie a number of times, including for a documentary I did on my on my grandmother about life in Fitzroy. And he just spoke so beautifully and eloquently and about, you know, what life was like and how he got through those times. And another beautiful thing about Uncle Archie, I guess he was so supportive and encouraging of young talent as well. And I think his foundation now is really honouring that and continuing his work and vision of his. And look, he performed right up until the very end. Um, and that just goes to show how dedicated, how much he cared about his community. And I think not only his songs touched all of us, but his message and now the path that he's paved for the next generation is something that we'll all be grateful for. So true. We've got more tributes to Uncle Archie throughout the show. My guests have been ABC journalist Nakari Thorpe and Professor of Indigenous Policy and Acting Director of Jambana Research at UTS, Lyndon Coombs. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. 
This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. The recent passing of Aboriginal singer-songwriter Uncle Archie Roach hit the Indigenous community hard. Many observe the irony that during a period when significant progress is being made on developing a voice to Parliament, we lost one of our greatest voices. Down city streets, I would roam. I had no bed, I had no home. Crawl out of bushes early morning. That was the late Uncle Archie Roach with Down City Streets. The song was written by his late wife, Ruby Hunter, and tells the all-too-common experience of Indigenous urban disadvantage. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Late last month saw the passing of Aboriginal songwriter, artist and activist Uncle Archie Roach. Archie, a Gunditjmara and Bundjalung elder, was born in the mid-1950s, removed from his parents and sent to live with a foster family at age four. 
After two unpleasant placements in foster care, Archie was eventually fostered by a family of Scottish immigrants in Melbourne. Following the death of his birth mother, Uncle Archie fell into a life of addiction and petty crime, and music was his way out. In 1990, his song Took the Children Away brought attention to the impact of the removal of Indigenous children from their families, becoming an anthem for the stolen generations. There are few Australian voices in the debate on social justice and Indigenous welfare that resonated as strongly as Archie Roach's. In 2000, he was awarded a Human Rights Achievement Award and in 2015, he was made a member of the Order of Australia for his services to music and social justice. In November 2019, Uncle Archie sat down with ABC journalist, producer and presenter Daniel Browning to celebrate the release of his memoir, Tell Me Why. Archie, thank you for writing this book. And in the prologue, there's a note that gets delivered to you when you're at school in Lilyfield in outer Melbourne, 1970, and it triggers much of what happens in the story, your life story. And it's a letter from one of your sisters, Myrtle. And the return address? Um, one Toxteth Road, Glebe. Yeah. Number one Toxteth Road, Glebe. One Toxteth Road, Glebe, yeah. It's not too far from where we sit. That's right, it's up the road. Across the park? Yeah. And what's it like being back here? Because you know these, these streets. You lived here, spent a lot of time in Belmore Park. You know these streets very well. It's a little um, surreal actually being here at this very moment when we're talking about a book, this book, memoir, and then the, the letter I received from, from my sister Myrtle uh, with the return address being just up the road. It's really, yeah, it's, uh, it's peculiar, it's odd feeling, yeah. Before you got that note, you weren't Archie Roach. You were some other person. You were. I was Archie Cox. Used the name of my, my dear foster parents, Alex and Dulcie Cox. Yeah. But you went to the office and you you'd been summoned to the office. There was an, an Archibald Roach, or an Archie Roach had been asked for, mm. and this letter was for this Archie Roach. Yeah. So you went to the office. You had a feeling. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I had, uh, um, you know, I've been using Archie Cox for... I went to the Coxes when I was about, I don't know, uh, six or seven, and uh, I was about 14 when that letter came to the high school, Lilydale, Lily, Lilydale High School. And, um, you know, when I said Archibald, William Roach, I knew my name was, full name was Archibald, uh, and Roach... Even though I'd been using Cox for a while, I, uh, Roach was uh, a name that sounded very familiar. Yeah, so I, I, I figured that it was for me. Yeah. And that story about the, the letter is where this memoir begins. It's the prologue. Mm. And you, you did that for a particular reason because that's the dawn of, of your understanding of, of your becoming Archie Roach, the man yes. you always were, the person you always were. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, it uh, set me off on this journey. Well, not straight away, but it had me questioning um, who I was and why was I in the, the predicament that I was in, uh, which I didn't think was a predicament. It was just uh, until that that I came. I, it certainly, um, yeah, it had me wondering and. And, and guessing as to who this person was that sent the letter and who I actually was. Yeah. I was going to ask you to read from the, the prologue. Did you want to do that or would you like to just talk about it? Oh, we, we could do it if we've got time, do you think? Oh, what do you reckon? <clears throat> oh, here we go. Yes, sir. Um, prologue, Lilydale, Melbourne, 1970. Sometimes you can go years without really changing as, as a person. 
Maybe you get a little rounder, a little uh, balder, but inside you're the same man. Same values, same hopes, pretty much the same bloke. Sometimes, though, it can all change in a day. In the morning, you have one life ahead of you, and in the afternoon, another. That happened to me once when I was a boy. I was in Mrs. Peter's English class, one of my favourites. Minding my own business, which was something I used to be very good at. Then that moment came. She's the rickety old speaker in the classroom. Could Archibald William Roach come to the office, please? Archibald William Roach. Thank you. The message didn't, did, the message didn't mean much of anything to Mrs. Peters or the other children. There was, there was no Archibald William Roach at the school, but it had me squirming around in my seat like it was a stove. Archie Cox had been my name for as long as I could remember, or so I thought. I tried to go back to my work after the, me the message, but couldn't. My eyes glazed over, and all I could hear was that name, Archibald William Roach. Afterwards, something deep in me started to take over. This something had been in, in me pretty much as long as I could remember. It had tried to take over before, when I was alone in the bush, or when I was listening to certain sad and lovely music. It whispered in my ear, trying to tell me about another world and another life. I was usually good at ignoring those whispers, but on this day I couldn't. I wanted to stay in my seat and finish my day, live Archie Cox's life. I think that message is for me, I said, standing. Mrs. Peters was a, a lovely old lady. She loved my writing, especially my poetry, and would encourage me to share my work in front of the class but I would stumble through it, embarrassed. She saw, she saw something in me though, in my love of words. She still had her Canadian accent, but had been living in Australia long enough to know something, something wasn't quite right. You better go then, she said. When I got to the office, the secretary asked if I was Archibald William Roach. I don't know why I knew that name was mine, but by then I knew it was. I told the secretary that that was, was me and she passed me a letter that seemed to vibrate in my hands. Across from the counter was a wooden bench for students awaiting punishment. And there I sat, staring at the envelope. The front read, Archibald William Roach, care of Lilydale High School, 25 Melbourne Avenue, Lilydale, Victoria. The boy I started the day was as would have handed the letter back and explained that he'd made a mistake. He would have said this letter wasn't for him and he would have gone back to his class, back to his schoolwork, back to his house, where his guitar and supper and parents were waiting for him. I took the letter out of the envelope and unfolded it. <clears throat> Dear brother, <clears throat> Dear brother, Dear brother, your dear old mum passed away a week ago. Her name was Nellie Austin and she had been living in Sylvan. Your other brothers and sisters are Johnny, Alma, Lawrence 
Gladys and Diana. Your dad already, already passed away, and his name was Archie too. I thought it was time to get in touch with you. Love, Myrtle. The world started to spin with names and faces and thoughts and songs and feelings that were brand new and also old and familiar. I saw a dormitory packed with beds and black children. I saw two girls, big girls, bigger than me anyway. I saw their names, Gladys, Gladys and Diana. These were my sisters. It was also suddenly vivid. I flipped the envelope over and saw a return address. Myrtle Evans, 1 Toxteth Road, Glebe, Sydney, New South Wales. I folded up the letter, tucked it into my school bag and dragged my feet to a classroom that was no longer mine. In Archie Cox's favourite class, I stared past his essay and thought of my dead mother. I thought about my father too, also dead. I thought of the brothers and sisters that I knew nothing of and about my name. I thought about Toxteth Road, Glebe, Sydney. Is everything all right, Archie? Mrs. Mrs. Peter asked quietly. It took me a little while to reply. I'm not sure. I reckon that was the last thing Archie Cox ever said. Thank you. I know that that wasn't easy, but there's many, many things in this memoir that aren't easy. And in in writing a story uh, like this, your life story, mm. you've had to confront a whole like there's a lot of there's a, an immense amount of joy and yeah. and pleasure, and you find it in the oddest places, Archie. But you do have to confront some very hard things. That's right. And it also involved for you, you know, a search in the archives. But how did you get, how did you get through? How did you navigate that process? Um, what gets through the process of? Of just confronting, you know, on a daily basis when you're sitting there at the computer. It, was, um, it wasn't easy. It was hard to, 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 to realise that, um, especially reading some of the files from the, when they came through the freedom of information um, and realising that total strangers um, uh, had control or you know, uh, determined where I should live, who I should be with, just not to, to you know, I was secluded. I was secluded from, from Aboriginal people. There was no other Aboriginal people that where I was sent and where I, I lived and so there was nobody else I could c- compare mm. myself to or with so it was it, it took me back to those times and it took me back to the time when I just thought I was just like because I lived in the place where with the Coxes my, my, my foster parents it was a, a lot of new, new Australians we used to call them back then new Australians and uh, some people call them refugees today. But they were new Australians, Italian, Greek, Dutch, all sorts of people that became the workforce, you know, that, that built a lot of the cities. And, or, or, you know, confronting that, that past when, when I was first, you know, I took a friend home and, and, and he wondered why my, my, my parents were white and I was black and... 
I didn't realise I was black. And so it, it, it brought up all those, those memories and I was taken right back. This memoir is full of something which I don't think I could manage and that is forgiveness. There's a lot of forgiveness in, in yeah. this memoir. Yes. How did you turn that particular corner to be in a position where you had enough left emotionally and spiritually to forgive? There's some things, uh, you know, just a lot of stuff that you won't forget. But um, you can forgive people. And it wasn't so much about um, forgiving them so that they could feel better. The forgiving part for me was uh, to forgive them so that I could feel better, so that I could heal. But it helped me, you know, friends are good friends. Uh, music was a way to express myself and to, to talk about things or to bring up things that were in the past I, I get drunk and a negative way of, of, uh, of, of dealing with it, negative way of trying to process the pain and the, the trauma through alcohol and uh, getting the fights and, and hurting yourself and trying to hurt other people is just no good. So um, I found out after I stopped drinking and that that, um, that, that certainly wasn't the way to go and uh, to be a bit kinder to myself. And so, yeah, I, I, like I said in the first place, Daniel, it was about me getting better and healing the forgiveness part. I couldn't hold on to that. So I, I just let that go. Mm. I said, fair enough. Uh, I can forgive you for that. You misguided attempts at trying to you know, uh, save the Aboriginal people from themselves. And uh, there was an interesting thing, though, Daniel. I said, uh, I just mentioned this. There was a song I wrote about a young bloke by the name of Louis St. John Johnson who got murdered in, in Perth by, by, by a carload of uh, um, white boys because he was, just because he was black. But his adoptive mother said to me, he said, we tried to save Louis from the misery of his people. Yet we couldn't save him from the misery of mine. And I, I took that to heart. And it has a lot to do with my forgiveness, yeah. There's something that's implicit in all your songs and that's hope, mm -hmm. you know, because if, and in this book as well, because in order to create what we are actually doing is we're, it's hope manifest, isn't it? It's like, yeah. I'm doing this because I have hope. Yes, that's right. What do you hope for your, for your children, your grandchildren, and what do you hope for this country? Oh, yeah, I'm the best. You know, I hope that, you know, that we all heal and heal together as people, as a nation. And, uh, come to a better understanding of one another uh, and it takes us getting off our backsides and, and uh, meeting people and talking to them. And there's some angry people out there, black, white and brindle, but we've got to yeah, look past that and uh, get closer to the ones that want to, to come together, the one to heal past wounds, you know, and forge ahead and write a new story for this country and we can all be authors of that new story uh, where, where we can uh, heal past wounds together and uh, it'll take a little while but we can start you know, and that's what I hope for, <clears throat> for this country 
for my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, that they, they, uh, they're living you know, in, in the most beautiful country in, on this earth, Australia. It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful country, you know. And I believe that, you know, there's a lot of good and beautiful people that live in this country. And uh, we need to work towards achieving, you know, achieving that for our children, our grandchildren, so that they can, you know, look back at the past and, and think, why would they ever do that? Here we are all together. And uh, that's what I hope for anyway. That's what I have for a long time. And believe that we all come from a place that is not too different to the similar place. Our beginnings were, were the exact same place. Place of fire or fireplace. And some people left. Some people stayed. Mm-hmm. Some people came back to that place. And, uh, you know, if people realise, you know, retrace their footsteps and come back, you know, to, to a place of, uh, of fire where we, you know, understood where we was one people. Because all tribes spread out from one, you know, who was leading that people, those people, out from that place of fire, they became, belonged to that fellow's tribe or this fellow's tribe or that person's tribe. But they first come from the original tribe and that's all of us. That's what I hope people realise in this country. For my children, my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. That's Uncle Archie Roach speaking with ABC journalist, producer and presenter Daniel Browning. As the world's oldest living culture, our tradition of storytelling goes back into deep time. Archie Roach was a modern day storyteller cloaked in this tradition. As he now takes that final journey to be with his ancestors and his beloved Ruby Hunter, he leaves us with the gift of his generosity and dignity in fighting for his truth. He will be deeply missed by us all. This story's right, this story's true I would not tell lies to you Like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us, come take our hand Set us up on mission and Told us to read, to write and pray then they took the children away, took the children away, the children away. Snatched from their mother's breast, said this is for the best, took them away. Welcome and the policeman said you've got to understand. We'll give to them what you can't give. Teach them how to really live. Teach them how to live, they said. Humiliated them instead. Taught them that and taught them this. And others taught them prejudice. took the children away. The children away Breaking our mother's heart Carrying us all about Took them away One dark day on Framling hand Came and didn't give a damn My mother cried Go get their dead He came running Mother's tears were falling down Dad shaped up and stood his ground He said, you 
touch my kids and defied me. Then they took the stronger family, took us away. They took us away. Snatched from our mother's grace, said this is for the best, took us away. the show for this week. Join us again next week when we look at a new book that explores the experiences of Indigenous children in the out-of-home care and criminal justice systems. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.